0: Welcome to 2819, I'm Sandra Dimez, and I'm Daniel Almaguer. And today's topic is all about Noah's Flood. That's right. It's going to be deep.
1: It's going to be a deep topic, yep. that's correct. In Everyday Apologetics, Kyle Kelts will offer insight on animal suffering.
0: And in Science Faith Connection, Jeff Swernk will chat with astrophysicist Hugh Ross about the question, was the flood a real event?
1: First up will be Culture Talk. Sandra will be interviewing Jeff Zwerink on the scientific possibility of a global flood. So let's go ahead and check it out.
0: Welcome to Culture Talk. This is a segment where we talk about culturally relevant topics that you can use to start conversations about your faith. And I'm joined today with astrophysicist Jeff Zwering. Thank you for joining us. Hi,
2: Sandra. always enjoy being here.
0: (laughs) We're going to be talking about the possibility of a global flood, and we're going to look at that from a scientific perspective. So just to kind of unpack this topic, the book of Genesis tells us that a flood covered the tops of the mountains, that the floodgates of the sky and the fountains of the deep were opened. Uh Um, So from that, Christians posit that the flood was global and that it covered the entire surface of the earth. So let's discuss the scientific possibility of that. Is it scientifically possible that there's enough flood water or enough water to Uh cover the entire surface of the earth?
2: Well, that's one of the questions we can ask. Uh, you know, the, whether it's global flood has a whole lot of other implications to it or things you might measure. But one is, you know, you, there's a certain amount of water that it takes to cover the entire mm-hmm. Earth. And you, know, you read the Genesis account, and one thing that's clear is that where the water came from, it went back to, and that's how it was cleared out. And so mm-hmm. we, we, what that means is that we can now go look at the amount of water that's on Earth today and then ask the question, what sort of flooding would be possible yeah. with that? Now I mean there's obviously a lot of water on the Earth today, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, you know what's interesting is that if you take all the water that's on the or all the water that's on the Earth, it's about 330 million cubic miles, and it's one of those cool numbers. It sounds yeah. really impressive, but it's really hard to visualize. Um, one of the coolest visuals I thought is if you take it and just put it into a ball, mm-hmm. it's a ball that's about 860 miles across. Wow. So go from Utah to Kansas City a ball of water that big. You think, okay, that that could easily cover. But when you ask the question, okay, how large is the surface of the earth? What's the texture and everything? If you take all of that water and make the earth perfectly smooth, Mm -hmm. it would cover the earth about about 1.7 miles deep. Mm -hmm. So you think, okay, that's a lot of water. But you go look at the surface of the earth today, you've got Mm -hmm. Mount Everest, which is roughly just under 300,000 feet, or sorry, 30,000 feet tall. Mm -hmm. You've got ocean trenches that are, uh, you know, 12,000 feet deep, Mm -hmm. and then then you, or sorry, 12 miles deep. And then you ask the question, could the water that we have cover that terrain? And the answer is no, because 1.7 miles, you need about four times that amount of water to get up above Mount Everest. So, either... There had to be more water somewhere, which has been removed from the Earth, or the terrain of the Earth had to be very different. But to change the terrain of the Earth very differently, that would leave geological signatures in the Earth today, and we don't find any of those. So when you look at it, it's really hard to argue Mm -hmm. there's enough water to cover the entire Earth with a flood.
0: Well, I like what you said about the the geological markers that Mm -hmm. we would see. So that's something that we would expect to see, but we don't see, is that correct?
2: Well, yeah, because if you're going to create mountains, so Mm -hmm. so if Mount Everest was created in the last few thousand years, Mm -hmm. that requires a certain level of tectonic activity. Well, so you go hit a bowl of jello, you hit the bowl of jello, and it sits there in ripples for a while. Well, jello's jello. But if you do that to the earth, you create mountains, Mm -hmm. it's going to ring inside the earth and that lasts long enough that we would still be able to measure it today. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, either like I said, you either have to have more water, Mm -hmm. which I don't see where you'd get that cuz the Genesis account seems to say that it went back to where it came from right. or there's got to be this massive tectonic activity which we have no signature of today. So, right. barring God just doing things and removing any trace of it, the glo- the flood in Genesis, it doesn't look like it's global, which also corresponds to what goes on in Psalm 104 where God's talking about the third creation day that God sets a boundary for the water that never again will it transgress and cover the whole earth. So, mm-hmm seems like the Bible's talking about a large but regional flood and that's what the scientific
0: evidence would indicate too. So then if the flood is is not global in that it didn't cover the entire surface of the earth um, what was so significant about it like why what did it actually cover then and what, did, what would be the signif- significance of having a local flood? Well, so, so
2: the significance there mm-hmm. is that, this, you know, yes, it's a regional flood or a local mm-hmm. flood, but it's still a very large flood, mm-hmm. covers you know million square miles. You know, so mm-hmm. it's a lot of region in the Mesopotamia area. And if you look at the, the purpose of the flood in Scripture, it was to judge all the sinful, reprobate, mm-hmm humanity Mm -hmm. and you look in Genesis and it seems like humanity never spread out beyond kind of the Mesopotamia region so a flood in the Mesopotamia region would have judged all of humanity which is Mm -hmm. what the Bible said happened in the flood and said that God would never do again so we've had large regional floods but never has there been one flood that judged all of humanity
0: right so I, I think that's very helpful because when we think of the flood at least for me as a kid I thought okay well I I didn't really think through it too much, but if you had Mm. to sit me down and ask me, I probably would have thought it covered the entire Earth. Right. um, Not knowing about migration and mm-hmm. where humanity existed at the time. So at the time of the, the flood, when was it about? Uh, you know, probably,
2: you know, you know, Hugh puts a date on it somewhere back mm-hmm. in the last ice age, something on the order 50, 60,000, 40, 50, 60,000 years ago.
0: Okay, so I definitely didn't know where humans <laughs> were at that time. <laughs> right. But um, they would have been localized. They wouldn't have really migrated a- across the entire globe.
2: Well, that is, that is something I think in our model, we say that yes, humanity it was in that local region mm-hmm. and then after the flood it migrated out because we're committed to what the, biblical, what the Bible seems to teach is that it judged all of humanity. Mm-hmm. And so if there were humanity spread out across the earth and then there was a regional flood that wiped out, that would not satisfy what the Bible is right. talking about, about that flood. So, uh, you know, evidence, or yeah, So our scientific evidence, all the evidence seems to be that we were in the Mesopotamia region, mm-hmm. and that's what the Bible seems to talk about, and so that flood would wipe out all of humanity and everything that humanity had touched which seems consistent with God's character
0: right and and I think it it lands nicely with the old earth creation model exactly. which is a model for um, reasons to believe right. the organization um, so I have a question then because it's something that I actually heard when I was at the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. and maybe you've heard this as well that the flood is actually what carved those mountains so when you talk about the amount of water needed mm-hmm. that it maybe would have been a smoother surface, but the flood actually carved these, um, something like the Grand Canyon. If you think about that, mm-hmm. that kind
2: of harkens to the Grand Canyon is over a mile deep. Mm-hmm. Well for the water to do that the water's got to be able to go down to something Mm -hmm. so you've got to have water being up and water low and so so you run into problems there because the other problem with a global flood is that the global flood lays down most of the geological features so it had to lay down all of the features of the canyon, compact it, build the canyon up and then carve it out. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of problems that exist with a global flood from a scientific perspective but I also think a global flood Really is a challenge to fit with what the Bible says because again if you go look at Psalm 104 when God created on day three he separated the land from the water Mm -hmm. and In Psalm 104 it tells us never again will water cover the entire earth well, if Mm -hmm. you've got a global flood now you've got this inconsistency between Psalm 104 and uh, the Genesis creation or the Genesis flood
0: So it's talking then about a primordial earth that water was covering the entire surface, which is what we would read in in Genesis 1. On day three, right. Right. And then after that, no more. Never again will it return to cover the earth. So
2: if that's correct, then the Genesis flood cannot be global in that sense. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, thank you. There's definitely a lot to unpack with this topic. Um, You've got a blog on this topic. So I'm going to point our our readers to that. Is there anything else you want to add on this topic?
2: No, I just it's, a, it's one of those, it's a fascinating, it's one of these that Christians have talked about and I'm sure we'll keep investigating, trying to research and figure yeah. out what does the scientific data say about yeah. the, the flood in Genesis.
0: Yeah, and really I like how you're comparing the scientific data and then the biblical account and how um, it aligns. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that, Jeff. So if you wanna hear more on this topic, go to reasons.org and search is a global
3: flood scientifically possible? Scientists studying animal behavior have observed these creatures in many instances engage in some pretty sophisticated and impressive behavior that seems to be reminiscent of the type of behavior we display as human beings. For example, researchers have observed chimpanzees both in captivity and in the wild mourning dead. Uh, And it's clear that they seem to have an emotional response to the loss of members in their group uh, that they that they uh, seem to again recognize very real loss. Uh, many evolutionary biologists interpret this behavior as reflecting kind of an evolutionary antecedent that is a preamble to the, again, the evolutionary emergence of our sophisticated behavior as human beings. The question is: is that interpretation valid? Uh, I'm joined today by Dr. Kyle Keltz. Uh, who's going to help us address that question and more. Uh, uh, Kyle has a a PhD in the philosophy of religion. He's a Christian scholar. He's a professor of English and philosophy at the college level. Uh, Kyle, thanks so much for uh, for being here with us.
4: Thanks for having me on, Fuzz. I'm I'm excited to talk about this because I don't know how many people are talking about this methodology with animal cognitions.
3: Yeah, well, not not that many, at least in Christian uh, apologetic circles. Um, you know, first of all, as Christians, how should we interpret these kind of studies?
4: Oh, yeah, well, uh, we're going to talk about some methodological distinctions. I I think, you know, just as a Christian going into it we don't need to be all that worried about it. I I know something that you emphasize a lot is that one researcher will say something like the claims you are mentioning that it seems like animals aren't different in kind from humans. So we share something Mm -hmm. with with some animal. Uh, But what we need to emphasize for one is of course Christians need to be using discernment. But for every, you know, in animal cognition it's almost like for every researcher who says that we're the same, there's also a, there's also others who are saying, no, we don't think that this is this conclusion is warranted. Yeah. So we don't need to come. We don't need to be all defensive going into it. And there's a few distinctions that we can keep in mind that'll help guide us along.
3: Yeah. So, so you know, you know, one of the the, the things that we've talked about before, and, and this is something that you, I think, bring up. Uh, very importantly, in your 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 PhD dissertation, uh, is that as human beings we, we have a tendency to anthropomorphize, and and yes. that and there's concern that that may actually influence the way we interpret these results. So first of all, what it, what is anthropomorphism, and and maybe maybe a little bit about what is the source of our. Our tendency to anthropomorphize as human beings.
4: Okay, yeah. Uh, so anthropo- anthropomorphization is whenever you attribute human abilities or human attributes to animals. Uh, in the context of uh, animal cognition, I mean, you can anthropomorphize anything. You know, like I'll say that my printer doesn't like me, or yeah. that's an angry storm. But anytime you're attributing uh, human abilities or or uh, attributes to something, you're anthropomorphizing. Now, a couple things I wanted to talk about, because there's a, especially in the study of animal cognition, there's some history behind uh, kind of almost like uh, this bias towards anthropomorphization, but I also wanted to talk about why it's just natural for us to do it. Um, But the history behind it in the the study of animal cognition is that uh, after Darwin's uh, theory really took hold, A part of his early theories, uh, one of them is that he thought that uh, there was this phylogenetic scale, Mm -hmm. right? And so the the idea was that human beings are the same. All animals are the same in kind. It's just that human beings are at the top of this phylogenetic scale. And they're, you know, in degree, they're just the best at the top. And at the bottom, they thought it would be this smooth transition all the way to the bottom. Almost like a stepwise smooth uh, thing that you would find in nature. Um, But... Uh, so because they a lot of researchers were buying into this, they were starting to really look for human attributes in animals. So they were in the literature you can see them around this time uh, you know saying that well rats can reason uh, or dogs can make inferences of of various sorts. Well, a researcher who came on the scene uh, was Lloyd Morgan uh-huh. and he started to emphasize he said, look, I think you're 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 basically being over, you're over eager with this phylogenetic scale, and he came out what we now know as Morgan's Canon, Mm -hmm. which is an anti-anthropomorphic principle Mm -hmm. that uh, when you're studying animals, uh, you should never attribute higher order processes, uh, human-like abilities to animals, uh, whenever you could explain it with a lower order process. Mm. It's almost like an Occam's razor of animal right. cognition. Right. Um, so, uh, and, and anti-anthropomorphization is a principle that's actually still taught in animal cognition textbooks yeah. today, and it's emphasized in, in the study of it. But um, something that we've talked about before, uh, when, when we address the problem of animal suffering, and we talk about what it's like, maybe what is it like to be an animal, is that we've, we know that what one thing that we think makes humans unique is that we have this uh, almost intrinsically personal ability, mm-hmm. this intrinsically personal awareness mm-hmm. when we view the world. Yeah. And because that's what I tell people, I say, you know, animals aren't self-aware so they don't suffer as persons. And, and you hear some people say, well, that just sounds absurd. It doesn't seem to make any sense. Well, the problem is that whenever you think about what it is like to be an animal, you're using this auto-noetic awareness, this mm. intrinsically yeah. personal awareness, and you're casting it upon that question. So, But if you think about it, that's what we basically do to everything. Every, the way we view the world is right. from this first personal perspective, this self-aware right. perspective. So I think as human beings, because that's what we are, we just naturally right. attribute human-like right. uh, attributes to, to things. A- and especially with animals, because they're so similar to us. Because, you know... Right humans are rational animals and 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 then you've got non human animals but but when they do activities similar to what we do, it's so easy for us to just think that right. they're they're reasoning through it like we do
3: well, you know uh kind of to build off of your point you know the 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 way I think about this, and I think it's essentially saying the same thing that you're saying, but maybe with different language is that as humans we have theory of mind right yes. that I recognize that you have a mind just like mine, and I can. Begin to anticipate, uh, in, in what you're thinking, what you're feeling, right, uh, and and then I, I've got we, we have this desire to kind of link our, our minds together, right? right, and and that's part of what makes us unique. Animals don't seem to have that capability, but the net effect is that we then start attributing a human-like qualities to everything else around us, yes, in, inanimate things and in animals, and that's the real that's the the danger, right? right? So even if you're operating with this anti-anthropomorphic uh, mindset, it's very difficult to, to break away from that because of our, our, our tendency as human beings to do that very thing.
4: Right, right.
2: Hello, Jeff Zwerink here and welcome to Science Faith Connection, the segment of our show where we explore important scientific ideas and see how they relate to the truth of Christianity. Today, I'm joined in studio with Dr. Hugh Ross, and we're going to be talking about the Genesis Flood. Hugh, it's good to have you here today. Well, thank you, Jeff. So, the Flood uh, stands as one of those big biblical events that has a lot of importance, that it seems like it's got a lot of scientific connection. Uh, I know some are saying that maybe it's not a real event, or maybe it's describing theological concepts, but I just thought I'd start off our discussion today. Asking you, why do you think the Bible is describing a real historical event in the flood?
5: Well, I see nothing in what the Bible describes about the flood that would contradict anything we know from the scientific record. So it's certainly scientifically feasible. Uh, I wouldn't go so far to say we can scientifically prove it. Mm-hmm. It's an event that happened too long ago. And it was a relatively brief event. The Bible tells us the flood waters rose for five months and subsided for seven months. So it's a relatively brief event. And the brevity of the event, and given how long ago it happened, uh, not just a few thousand years ago, but tens of thousands of years ago, means that we wouldn't have any anticipation of any really significant scientific signature.
2: So any sort of geological features that would be left over from it? Is, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? The or? only
5: thing I know of that could possibly be a signature, there's some geological evidence, significant geological evidence, that there was a berm that was broken at the mouth of the Gulf of Hormuz, uh, which would have permitted a massive sudden rush of water in from the Indian Ocean, and that may have been one of several contributors to the flood water. But other than that, I don't really know uh, of any scientific evidence we could point to. On the other hand, given what the Bible says about it, I don't anticipate finding any.
2: Okay, very good. So let, let's maybe take a step back and ask a question. Um, and your reading of the text, you know, Genesis 6 through Genesis 9 talks about the flood. Um, from a biblical perspective, what do you expect the flood to look like? Uh, you know, like what's its extent? You know, just what would you expect if you were back at the time looking at it? Sure. Well, it
5: tells us in Second 2 Peter 2.5 that it was the world of ungodly people that was flooded. The people and the soulish animals that were associated with them. Mm-hmm. So the question for the extent of the flood was, how far had ungodly people inhabited the earth? And what you notice in uh, Genesis, you don't really see any place names outside of the Persian Gulf region until you get to Genesis 10, post-flood. And so, and you got God commanding the post-flood peoples, multiply and fill the earth which is an implication that they were not obeying the command that God had given to Adam to multiply and fill the earth. And so that would be one piece of evidence that the flood was a regional event, not a global event. And that's affirmed by what we see in Psalm 104. Psalm 104 is the longest of the creation Psalms, takes you through the content of the six creation days, not in chronological order, but it does address the content. And in Psalm 104, verses 6 to 8, it's talking about how God transformed the surface of the earth Mm -hmm. from a water world to where he got oceans and continents, a clear reference to creation day three. Uh, But what it says in verse 9 is that never again will water cover the whole face of the earth. And so I would indicate that uh, there would be uh, no biblical possibility of a global flood uh, after God establishes continents. On the face of the earth,
2: so so your position is, and your position here at RTB is that the flood is a real event, one that uh, wiped out all of humanity. So presumably, the extent of godless man is the extent of humanity, right? And one where you know, just based on what Scripture has to say, that the flood didn't actually cover the whole earth. Uh, how, how large of a flood are we talking about, though? I mean, we've had lots of floods. Sure. I mean, even back in the 1990s, there was a pretty sizable flood back in the Midwest.
5: Sure, well, I think we can be confident there weren't ungodly people building cities in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. So no need for God to flood Antarctica. And humans wouldn't have had contact with the emperor penguins. Mm-hmm. So those emperor penguins wouldn't have been damaged by human sin. Mm-hmm. There'd be no need for God to wipe out the emperor penguins and you can probably make the same argument for Greenland. And I'm comfortable with, given what I see in Genesis 10 and 11, that the flood to wipe it all of humanity wouldn't need to encompass, say, more than a million, two million square miles in the Middle Eastern region uh, surrounding the Persian Gulf. think it was at least a half million square miles, but unlikely to be more than two million square miles.
2: So, this is a very large flood. It's a large but nonetheless, flood. Nonetheless, a flood that is geographically local in that sense.
5: Right. Catastrophic enough to wipe out all of humanity, all the animals associated with it.
2: So, why do you think it's important that it wiped out all of humanity? I mean, what, you know, is that a scientific statement, a, a biblical statement?
5: It's more of a biblical statement, Jeff, because, I mean, one study I've done is to go through the entire Old Testament and look at all the occasions where God is having to deal uh, surgery, moral, moral surgery, where he's removing the cancerous reprobation within the human population. Probably the most explicit example of that is Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, where mm-hmm. God uh, wipes out the human population of the five cities of the plain. But you've got Abraham saying, well, what about these wicked Amorites that are living up in the hills with me? And God says their wickedness has not yet reached its fullness. I will not touch them. Mm -hmm. And so God evidently limits his judgment wrath to the extent of human reprobation, where human reprobation is defined as individuals that are incapable of thinking, doing, or saying anything good. They're intent on doing physical harm to all the people around them. And we see that well described in Gomorrah when the uh, two angelic Mm -hmm. visitors come in.
2: So, so we've got a very large but local or regional flood, one that encompasses all of humanity at the time—a universal flood. Universal flood, right. right? I think that's 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 critical. Um, so, what would you say to the person, you know, the you know the the Christian who says, you know, well, you're talking about this large flood that's, that's local, but doesn't have any scientific evidence, why do you think this is even a historical event? What in the text indicates to you that it's not just talking about God's judging principles as opposed to an actual historical event? Well, I look
5: at Genesis 6, 7, and 8, and it's written in historical uh, context. I mean, I can't find a way to read those texts and read them as an allegory or a figure of speech. It literally is written as real history that happened. And so I can put to the test the Bible's inerrancy. The fact that we've got lots of external evidence uh, for the full inerrancy of the Bible tells me, hey, if this is written as history, it's real history.
2: So one last question. Do you think we will ever find scientific data that uh, corroborates or points to, hey, yeah, this was Noah's flood? Will we find artifacts from the humans that were living before or geological sediments or something like well,
5: that? Well, we might if the flood was, say, 1,000 uh, years ago. And you know, people often will look at the genealogies and claim there's no gaps. I believe there has to be gaps mm-hmm. in the genealogy. Moreover, it tells us uh, that it took Uh, almost a year for the floodwaters to recede away. For it to take that long for the floodwaters to recede, there would have to be huge amounts of uh, melting snow and ice, kind of like the big floods that have happened here in America, Mm -hmm. where you get the big floods is because you got a huge amount of snow and ice melt uh, from the past winter. And so uh, that would uh, tell me uh, that we're dealing with something that happened during the last ice age because that's how far you got to go in order to have significant amounts of ice and snow on the mountains that surround that region.
2: Well, thanks, Hugh. I appreciate your comments. You know, it is the case when you read through Genesis, there's lots of places where Genesis is describing things that happened in history, but, uh, and, and they have a scientific relevance that we can go out and investigate. I would encourage you to go to Reasons.org and check out Hugh's blog on this topic. It was, Did Any Human Survive the Flood? It will give you access to some of his thoughts on this as well as other resources you can use that help you see that what the Bible describes and what we find as we study creation line up and give us tools to share the gospel with others. We hope this episode has helped equip you to
1: share your faith, with compassion, and confidence.
0: You know, I learned a lot on this episode. What do you think?
1: I loved it. Again, yeah. it was a deep episode. Yeah, talking about the flood <laughs> was. I, th- I growing up, I always thought this flood covered literally the entire planet. Yeah. I never even thought about the possibility that it didn't cover the planet.
0: If you want to continue learning more about topics like this, be sure to find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at 2819show. We'd love for you to subscribe, follow, like, and leave us some comments and let us know what you think about the show.
1: And if you would like the audio version of the show, you can find us on most major podcast services. Just search Reasons to Believe podcast.
0: See you next week. See ya.